Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Philippa Nuttall, Editor, Environmental Sustainability in Brussels. It's Thursday, the 26th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we're talking about the Australian elections. Tonight, the Australian people have voted for change. I am humbled by this victory. What are the consequences of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's election for the country and the climate? Then we turn to North Korea, where rising COVID cases did not deter an intercontinental ballistic missile test. We also take a listener question on the tragic school shooting in the United States. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? Will this country ever enact gun control? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Katie, Philippa, thank you both so much for joining me today for this discussion. We have a lot to get to, so let's just get into it, starting with this week, the Labour Party won elections in Australia. Anthony Albanese is now Prime Minister, having beaten Scott Morrison's Liberal Party. Climate change was a key issue in the Australian election, so we're going to talk about why Labour won and what comes next. Philippa, to start us off, I, I, the question at the, at the top, why did Labour win? How to what extent did Albanese's policies on climate change propel him to, to victory? Yeah, I think it's clear that climate change obviously played um, a, a, a big part or a, a certain part in the election results. Scott Morrison has really pushed back against any form of climate action in recent years, and Australia has become very much a, a climate laggard. From the developed countries, it's, it's the only country... It, it's an economy who still is massively reliant on coal. And ahead of COP26, even though Australia signed up in theory for the, the pledge to become net zero by, by 2050, I think it was quite reluctant. They did it after a lot of pressure and, and they came forward with no new legislation, no new funding. And the government was still very clear that they would continue to, to rely on coal for decades. And there's been this very big, much of a push to rely on technology rather than such as carbon capture and storage, which would reduce, reduce emissions supposedly from fossil 
fossil fuels rather than actually taking fossil fuels offline. And then obviously, parallel to that in the past three years, Australia has experienced various catastrophic bushfires and and floods. And and Australia has always experienced a certain amount of extreme weather. But experts agree that this is now exacerbated uh, by climate change and events that used to happen once every couple of years are now happening several once a year or even several times a year. So it definitely played a part. Yeah. Our colleague, India Burke, had a piece ahead of the election on how Australia's, all parties, all all politicians had really failed the Great Barrier Reef. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think in terms of the Great Barrier Reef specifically, the government has has thrown various policies and and lots of money at it. But the big issue here is that if emissions continue to rise, global warming continues and increasing amounts of carbon are stocked in the ocean, then we get coral bleaching and and the reef dies. So there's only so much you can do without tackling the, the underlying problem, which is the need to reduce fossil fuels. All right. So now there's a new government, there's a new prime minister. Do we think that things will actually look different for Australia on climate change? You know, the New Statesman last year published pieces that were quite critical of Scott Morrison and his, let's say, inaction on these issues. Do you think that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will take a different approach in this new government? And what Sort of what concretely are you expecting from this new government? I think it depends in terms of how much power the Greens ultimately end up with. I mean, Albanese said in his victory speech that he would end the the climate wars. So this idea that certain people in Australia wanted action on climate change. And at the same time, the government, as I said before, has has very much pushed back and, and continue to move forward with fossil fuels, with a new coal projects. But at the same time, Labour won lots of seats in coal mining areas. And Anthony Albanese at the moment seems to be saying that he wouldn't stop the coal and gas gas export industry expanding. The International Energy Agency, the Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, are very clear that if we're going to stop dangerous levels of, of global warming, then no new fossil fuel infrastructure or projects are, are needed. So I think at the moment, it's quite open. The Australian Greens a couple of days ago said that they wanted a halt to all new gas and coal. So I think it's still up in the air at the moment. I think that the rhetoric to do more than Scott Morrison's government is definitely there. But the proof will be in the pudding to see actually what if policies do change and if there really is a real will to to halt coal and and gas. I think also what will change is a a certain amount of the coal is exported to China. There was a report that came out a month or so ago, uh, which suggested that China, as it decarbonises, will increase lower amounts of coal. And therefore, obviously, if Australia doesn't have an export market, then it will also need to change things at home. So it's not just for domestic consumption, it's also in terms of where it's exporting. I have one more question for you, and then I want to turn to, to Katie for a an Australia question that is not about climate change or the environment, at least directly. But it seems like this isn't the first time this has happened, where we've had a country that's had an election and climate change has been a big issue and it held as, is this the future of politics where we talk more about climate change and actually create policies based on those discussions? And then it actually doesn't move the needle in a substantial way. Is that, do you think that's a cynical reading of what's happening? I think you could take the German elections as an example, where obviously there were the, the terrible floods in Germany last year and climate change was very much the issue. Since then, obviously, there's been the Russian invasion of Ukraine and there has been a certain amount of pushback perhaps against that. But in the longer term, Germany still has now very ambitious goals um, to decarbonize. So while there may be 
small blips, people making a lot of the fact that Germany might bring some coal back online. The long-term goals, the medium-term goals are still there. And I think the will to decarbonize is still there. So I, I think you're being slightly cynical. I would like to think you're being slightly cynical. So I think the the fact that that climate change is an election issue. I think also if we look at the French elections, for example, um, there was a poll that was done, I think it was ahead of the, the second round of the elections, which showed that climate change was the, the top or the second to top election issue in the minds of voters. But actually it was way down. I think it was about the fifth issue that was actually debated by politicians. So I think there is a real desire from people uh, to see action on climate change. In Australia, even in conservative, traditionally conservative voting areas, there was votes demanding more climate action. Polling in the UK as well shows that in blue wall areas, people want action on climate change. So I think that voters will keep this on the agenda. And so that hopefully, even if politicians try and take a step back, it won't be possible because people do want action. And especially, I think in certain countries, we've always seen extreme weather. But as I said before, this is getting more frequent. We can see recently, we've just had record temperatures in various places in mm-hmm. India. It's been extremely warm in, in various places in Europe. You know, north, parts of northern France are already in drought in, in May. So so I think the impacts of climate change are, are coming closer to home and therefore people are much more aware that something needs to change. A, a welcome, welcome check against my cynicism. Katie, as forewarned, I have a question for you about this as well. So Australia played a pretty prominent role over the past couple of years in President Biden's sort of counter China, not an alliance, but partnership. We had AUKUS. There's talk of the Indo Pacific or talk of the importance of the Indo Pacific and, and obviously Australia's significance there. Have you gotten a sense from Asian countries that work with Australia or that feel, say, threatened by a more assertive Australia about how they perceived this election? I mean, I think one thing to, to say, uh, right at the start is just the the role that China played in the election itself in terms of the messaging. And in fact, I mean, both both sides, well, both of the lead contenders anyway, were really trying to position themselves as tough on China. The background to this is there's been real pushback um, in Australia in recent years over allegations of Chinese interference in Australian um, domestic politics that has sent the relationship between the two really into the into the deep freeze. China introduced trade restrictions on Australian imports. It has reportedly gotten to the stage or had gotten to the stage where there very, very little or, or perhaps even no high-level diplomatic contact between the two. And it's interesting that we have seen in direct response to the um, election result, China now reach out to Albanese. Um, So there are reports that Li Keqiang, the Chinese premier, has already sent a note of congratulations uh, to to the new prime minister, um, talking about the importance of the sound and stable development of the Sino-Australian relationship. So I think you are seeing the Chinese side to to you know who perhaps believe um, that they may be able to work uh, with with a Labour government than they were with Scott Morrison in recent years. But I think given the role that sort of domestic attitudes towards China have 
played and, and continue to play, as, as we saw in the in the election campaigning, it's difficult to see that that would be a politically sensible move for the for the new government. You know, it, it looks really like popular support is propelling um, and perpetuating. You know, wanting to see a, you know a fairly tough line from the political leaders towards China. And actually, just you know, as, as we were talking, I, I looked up because I, I wanted to to be able to describe you know some of the ways in which China was present, at least in a way in this in this election and I, I came up with this um, enormous poster on the back of a truck that was being driven around the, the streets of Sydney you know it, it's the big red communist flag with the gold hammer and sickle huge image of Xi Jinping and the headline is CCP says vote labor so you, you really saw these images of Xi Jinping and talk about China being really wielded um, as, as campaign tools as I say on, on both sides but I think for that reason it, it's difficult to see you know it may be a less overtly confrontational relationship but I don't think we would expect that to lead to you know a real meaningful shift thank you for that also your answer reminded me that I've been pronouncing the new prime minister's name not the way he says it, but the way that a an elementary school classmate of mine who had the same name said his prime minister, I apologize. I'm sure you're listening to the New Statesman World Review. All right. With that, we are going to stay in East Asia, but switch gears slightly. COVID cases are surging in North Korea, but information to the population is limited and actual relief limited even further still. So why did North Korean leader Kim Jong-un spend his time conducting a missile test? Katie, First, if you could tell us a bit about the COVID situation in North Korea. Yeah, so just to kind of bring listeners up to speed with, you know, how, how we got to the current situation. So for the last more than two years now, North Korea has insisted that it has no COVID cases whatsoever. It sealed its borders right at the, at the start of the outbreak in neighboring China in early 2020. And it has maintained, despite um, pretty widespread skepticism from um, international observers, that it had a single domestically transmitted COVID case during that time. That all changed on May the 12th, when the state news agency announced that they had detected their their first cases of, of COVID in the country. They announced a, a nationwide lockdown and declared what they described as a, a state of maximum emergency. Uh, by four days later, by the 16th of May, there were 1.2 million people said to be showing symptoms and 50 people said to have died. And at the time of this recording, as we're recording on Wednesday, 25th May, that figure is now up to 3.1 million people who are said to have shown symptoms of, of, of fever. I'll, I'll get into why it's being described that way um, in a little bit. But to, you know, to put that in perspective, that is more than 10% of the population. The population of North Korea is uh, just almost 26 million people. So 3.1 million people um, are now said to have to have shown symptoms of this fever. Now, the North Korean state insists that they are in control of the situation, that it's being, um, quote, stably managed. They say 2.7 million of those people have recovered and that the situation is now uh, showing a positive trend. But there are reasons to be extremely skeptical that that is the case. I'll just lay out a few of them. Number, number one is that there is no vaccination program in North Korea. North Korea is one of only two countries in the world alongside Eritrea, which has not started a formal vaccination program. That is despite offers of, of millions of vaccines both from China and from the COVAX program, North Korea has declined those offers. They have very limited facilities even to test and diagnose COVID. They are referring to these 
cases as fever cases, um, is the way they talk about them in the official media. And the the thinking is that that's because they just lack they lack the infrastructure to be able to accurately diagnose the, the spread of the outbreak. Key Park at Harvard Medical School, who has spent a lot of time working in North Korea, has studied the situation estimates. They have the facilities to test around 1,500 people a week. Um, so that is a, a tiny fraction um, of the number of people who are now showing symptoms. And then there's just, you know, the public health care facilities that are available to people in North Korea, you know, particularly outside the capital Pyongyang, you're talking about clinics and hospitals that very often lack reliable electricity. Some of them lack reliable access to clean water, to basic, basic medicines, let alone, you know, the ability to, to treat an influx of patients with, with COVID symptoms and, and, you know, resources like ventilators and, and oxygen um, that they might need. And finally, and, and you know, I realize this is just a, a list of very, you know, very, very depressing um, circumstances. But then you have to consider the underlying um, health condition of the North Korean population. You know, the last estimates we, we have, uh, I think 2020 um, is the last report, 40% of the population was said to be chronically malnourished. That's more than 10 million people. There are also very high levels of tuberculosis um, in North Korea, which can make COVID cases much, much more severe. So I think, you know, given all of these, given all of these factors, no vaccines, limited testing, very decrepit medical facilities, a, a chronically malnourished population, you know, there's, re there's reason to believe this is a very serious situation, certainly that it's much more serious than the authorities are acknowledging. But as you note, um, instead of accepting any of the very many offers of international help that are now coming in, you know, China, South Korea, the United States, COVAX again are, are offering help as soon as North Korea would accept it. Instead, what we're seeing is North Korea once again testing uh, long-range missiles. So it has it has tested three missiles this morning, uh, one of which is assessed by South Korean defense officials to be the, the new generation of intercontinental ballistic missile, a model known as the Hwasong-17. Um, so I think that perhaps tells you everything you need to know about the priorities of, of the regime here. And you know, despite the, the millions of people who are now showing symptoms of, of COVID, you know, they are continuing um, th this very belligerent, very provocative weapons program. Right, so I have a follow-up which is obviously we understand, our listeners understand that this is a dictatorship where like the health and well-being of, of this people is not front of mind. However, even so, it, it does seem like letting a deadly virus whip through your population while focusing on your weapons is perhaps a short-sighted move. Can you just break down a bit of the, you know, you've you've written a book that's in part on the stories that, that North Korean leaders tell themselves and those they rule. Can you just speak a bit about the, the logic there? Yes, yeah, so the, the regime insists that essentially the weapons program is the basis of their security. So if they don't have that, then, then they don't have anything. The North Korean regime tells its own people falsely that the current leader's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, 
liberated the country from Japanese colonial rule in 1945 and then defended them against what they present as a, an unprovoked attack on North Korea by South Korea and the United States during the Korean War, which is not what happened. It was North Korea that attacked South Korea. But the, the version of that history that is told to, to citizens there is essentially that, that their country is under constant existential threat of another foreign invasion, that their enemies are, you know, working to to prevent them uh, from being able to to lead stable happy prosperous lives they're, they're working to thwart their development and threaten their security so they need to channel these very demonstrably scarce resources into the weapons program so they need to have missiles they need to have nuclear weapons they describe um, the, the nuclear program as the treasured sword of north korea that is presented as securing as securing the, the survival of the country. So the way that this is presented in domestic media, there is no contradiction. Mm. Um, these are these are both, you know, they're they are both part of this, you know, ongoing uh, struggle for survival that, that the, the regime presents the country as being subject to. But you know, it is short sighted not to at least attempt to address the situation and not to at least start to vaccinate the population because you know those are also the same people who are serving in the military, who are working mm-hmm. on the collective farms, who are the kind of lockdowns that are now being imposed and the management processes that are underway could themselves have have terrible consequences. You know, North Korea was already widely believed to be on the brink of famine before this happened. There are very real problems with access to to, to food in normal times. But since they sealed the borders uh, and really cut back very seriously on, on, on imports from the outside, particularly from, from China in early 2020, that situation has, has got much worse. Um, so it, it's a very serious situation for, for individual people. But there's just no evidence that the regime is going to in any way shift shift away from its current priorities. And unfortunately, we have it, there is precedent for this. There was a terrible famine in North Korea in the 1990s under Kim Jong Un's father, Kim Jong Il, and there, you know, a reason to be to be skeptical and to be alarmed at the, about the situation now is that then it was not clear until, you know, it it took really years for the extent of that famine and that crisis to become apparent to the outside world. We still don't know how many people died in that famine. But despite the very terrible situation then, Kim Jong-il still pressed ahead with his own policy. He he had this a policy of Songun or, or military first, and he was still prioritizing the needs of, of the military and this idea that, that the country needs to be able to defend itself above the needs of, of its citizens who were dying in that famine. So, you know, unfortunately, the precedent here is not encouraging for how the regime will prioritize the needs of individual citizens over its overall security. We will continue to follow the story of North Korea, both its, both the COVID situation and its missile tests. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. 
having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. For now, though, it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. For the second week in a row, I'm not going to ask my co-discussants to do the little call and response we normally do because for the second week in a row, it would stand in jarring contrast to a discussion of a mass shooting in the United States. On Tuesday, an 18-year-old shot and killed two teachers and 19 children, 19 children at an elementary school in Texas. So one listener wanted to know, if the Senate doesn't believe it has enough votes to stop a Republican filibuster on sensible gun control, why don't they try it nonetheless? This year is an election year. The majority of voters want gun control. So how many senators up for election are willing to filibuster? Why don't they try it and find out? Okay, a few things. First, we may well see them bring it to a vote that will fail. Secondly, there are 50 Democratic senators. They could break the filibuster for this if they wanted to. Moderate Democrats don't want to. And finally, while it's true that something like 90% of Americans do support some measure of gun control, 90% of Americans are not or have not, at least to date, cast their ballots on this issue. So some do, but the majority of Americans are not saying, okay, I want some gun control, therefore I'm going to vote for a Democrat, which is to say that 50 Republicans could vote against this. And I I don't think it would really hurt their reelection chances, unfortunately. People who say that we're being held hostage to our political leaders and their fealty to the gun lobby are correct. And those political leaders, they're not providing a way out of this. And I honestly, I don't think that uh, the voters are either. 
really, at least the way in which the system is is set up now, which remember does favor Republicans, particularly in the Senate. I also just want to say that last week I noted that after the Buffalo, the, the white supremacist mass shooting in Buffalo, that we had basically just given up on getting gun control in the wake of a mass shooting. I think that basically remains true. It's ludicrous, right? Like what, what kind of country is just like, yeah, 19 children were shot dead. Must be Tuesday. Let's get back to it. But that's the country that we, that we are living in. But Katie, that, that's how I perceived it. What, it. what do you think? I mean, it's just so hard to process both, you know, the horror of what has happened and then, you know, how quickly we all shift to the, but here's why nothing can change. You know, I just, right as we were getting on this podcast, I got an, an, an email from the daycare where my, my son goes to say, you know, we're, we're going to keep the front door locked. Here's the access code. You know, we're reviewing how do we keep, we want to obviously do everything to, to keep our children safe and able to play happily in a secure environment. You know, we're talking about how, how, how do we keep toddlers safe in their daycare? You know, as soon as he's old enough, he's going to start doing active shooter drills and learning how to hide and how to fight and how to barricade doors. It is absolutely horrifying. And I don't, we talked before this recording and, you know, this does feel perhaps several steps removed from from, from what's happening now and the, and the political response. And, and perhaps Philippa would have thoughts on this too, but just, I mean, we also need to understand how this makes America look to the outside world. You know, I think I, I, I was based in, in China before I was here in the United States. And, you know, the Communist Party presents this as part of the argument about why their political system is superior. You know, they they report on how children are, are, are shot dead in their schools. You know, when, when Chinese students come to study here, there have been cases of them bringing body armor in their luggage because of this, you know, this this perception of, of how dangerous it, it, it can be and how out of control the gun situation in this country is. So I think, you know, this is an an urgent and absolutely devastating domestic problem, but it also is a you know it it's a there is a geopolitical side to the, to this problem too. It, it, this really undermines the case that American leaders make um, about the American offering to the world when this is what is happening. You know, week in, week out here. I have two quick things to add, and then I, I do want to hear from Philippa on this. The first is that you're completely right in that. Let's, let me put it this way. There was a tweet last night from the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. expressing condolences. And she said, in Ukraine, we also know what it's like to, to, to lose right. children. Ukraine is at war. Yeah. These kids aren't, this was not a war. They, they were just sitting in their elementary school. That's the difference. You should, yes, no, no child should die. Every child should get to go to school and come home safely. But it, this was not a country that was besieged by a foreign invader, but by its own gun policy. And the other thing, speaking of, Katie, of the daycare going through instructions and active shooter drills, it is appalling to me that the answer to this that we've already heard from politicians is, don't politicize this, let's arm teachers. Are you kidding me? First of all, your policies have politicized this for the rest of us. So that's number one. Number two, okay, so in in addition to, to teaching your students and taking care of them and making sure that they don't say the wrong thing because of these book banning laws that these goons are passing... They also have to worry about how to shoot. That's easier for you to do than to pass gun control. It is so galling that you'll try that. You'll suggest bulletproof backpacks before mm-hmm. you'll pass gun control. Mm-hmm. It's just like and the cowardice. 
Um, and, there, and there there were armed officers there as yes, there were in the right, buffalo right. case armed people you know this argument you know the only thing stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun the good you know terrible phrasing but you know, the good people with the guns were there yes. they tried to stop this and they couldn't because you know these people are armed with very high capacity very high velocity weapons so if the argument is well then we need more good people with guns you know we need to we need to arm and train teachers um it, it's just a yeah a, a shockingly inadequate and uh, frankly offensive it's inadequate it's offensive it's also let's just ignore the fact that every other country in the world that this ha- where, where this happens that then enacts gun control so that it doesn't become a thing that regularly happens as it does here. Philippa, mm-hmm. I did want to ask you, you're in Brussels. Katie and I are both here and watching this year, processing this year. What does this, what is the view from Brussels on all of this? I mean, I think in, in Europe in general, there's just total disbelief that whatever your um, understanding of your country's constitution, amendments, views on guns, that there's a certain swathe of the American public and politicians who seem to think that having the right to, to wield to bear arms is more important than protecting primary school children. And there's been lots of shows seen as well on social media comparisons within in 1996, uh, there was the mm-hmm. um, shooting in a, a primary school in Scotland in Dunblane, when there were lots of uh, very young children were also killed with their teacher. And after that, there was gun reform in the UK in terms of handguns and, and private ownership. And since then, touch wood, hopefully there has been no shootings in schools in the UK. And so I think there's the sort of total disbelief in Europe as to why America is incapable of of enacting a similar form of legislation. And Katie, what you were saying about your son, I find it very difficult to listen to. In 2016, there were the attacks in, in Brussels on the metro and, and at the airport, and, and they locked all the kids into the schools and to go and pick up our, even though obviously it wasn't in a school, and, and no, uh, they, to go and pick our kids up from the school, the, you had to go in and you had, they, you had to say your name, and the children were allowed out one by one, only to the, the, the parents. And it was a very emotionally charged time, and the idea that this is normality um, or becoming normality in, in the States is just really shocking and, and takes away this whole innocence of, of childhood and the, the kind of everybody becomes a potential shooter rather than somebody who is potentially a good person. And that seems to ask lots of very fundamental questions about society much on a much wider basis than just your, the, the right to bear arms or not. Yeah, I think generally people are quite shocked. Yeah, mm-hmm. speaking of the right to bear arms, and this is the last thing, because I, I know we've run long this episode, there's actually nothing in the Constitution that guarantees your right to an assault weapon. You have the right to a gun to form a well-regulated militia. That is what it says in the Constitution. You don't have the right to an AR-15. You don't have the right to be able to... That is not specified within the Constitution. So all these people who want to play originalist, who want to play, oh, it's not in the Constitution when it comes to a, a person's right to their own body or to LGBTQ rights, all of a sudden, we can imagine specifications of gun protections that are not in that document. So we should just be really clear about what that is. It's hypocritical, it's cruel, and above all, it is a choice that people continue to make again and again and will continue to make because they would rather misinterpret the Second Amendment than they would protect their own children. Mm -hmm. Okay, on that note, thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. Now, before we go, we did want to let you know that our sister publication, Press Gazette, has just launched a new podcast series. It looks at the future of the media. 
Today's episode is all about Ukraine. So it's they're going to be looking at the challenges of continuing to provide journalism from inside Ukraine for Ukrainian news organizations. You can search wherever you get your podcasts, Future of Media Explained, but we will also have a link for you to that in our show notes. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Ukrainian historian Serhii Ploki. If you have enjoyed or learned from or taken something from this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.